she did a picture. And he still makes me cry when I think about you. I'm going to tell you about you. This is Jason, or as he's known on the internet, Queber. Jason is from a small town in the very center of England, known as Stoke-on-Trent. It's about an hour's drive south of Manchester. It's one of the pictures that are going to go up for sale, and it's a castle. She's been to a castle with um, like a huge opening in the centre of it, where a drawbridge type, not a drawbridge, like you could walk through the centre of this castle. And it's a little forest and that, and there's just two little stick figures there. One is her and one is me. And she said, this is where I want to live with you. This is my dream. I could never make that dream happen. I would have had to win the lottery to do something like that. But it was always at the back of my mind that I always wanted to, to live into a, a little castle and a little place away from it all. And that's like one of the most heartfelt images that she did of with me and her on there, just sit, just in front of these tiny figures in front of this huge castle together. Me with my black coat on and her dressed in red. Because of her illness, Jason and his wife, Paula, were shut-ins who were unable to travel for two decades. But video games took them to places that were very real to the both of them. If you are a fan of the Assassin's Creed series, you are not going to want to miss this episode. Welcome to Heavily Pixelated. I'm glad you're here. Heavily Pixelated is a show that attempts to describe all the positive things that games do for us. I'm Scott C. Jones. I was always into computers from a very early age. I like to take things apart. I think it was my autism, which was mild enough to not be noticed properly. Jason always loved technology and gadgets, and he got that love from his father. I remember one Christmas, he bought an Atari 2600 with Space Invaders, and I could hear him playing it downstairs. <laughs> it was my Christmas present, but I could hear it going, da-da-da-da-da. And I was lying in bed upstairs, and then I've heard that before somewhere. Jason's love of computers was at the very center of his being. I had a ZX81, a Sinclair ZX81, and those ones that you had to actually type in the code to play the game. We were the last generation that saw the actual code. We got to make our own batch files and run games in DOS and everything like that. And I loved that. When Jason was a boy, his mother managed to get him a ridiculously powerful computer. The local college was upgrading its computer system. It was going from a very old system called a Systime 500, which was a what you'd call a mini frame. It wasn't a mainframe. It wasn't big enough. Had 16 computers plugged into it. And they were going up to some a DECVAX, the new thing. And they were going to throw this thing out. And my mum knew the person in charge of the technical and says, can I have that? My son would love that. So I ended up with a computer in my bedroom that was the size of a washing machine. It had copper discs inside it that were a foot across in little blue cassettes. You had to plug one of them in and then you had to turn it on and it took six minutes for it to get up to speed. So I learned Unix from that. I missed that old system. It was like my first in adventure into real 
Tech. I learned Pascal, Cobol, Basic, 6800 assembly language back then. When I got bored with it, after doing so many things with it, I opened it up and I could fit inside it. I could crawl inside it. And I actually take the, took the entire thing apart and I couldn't get it back together. I disassembled it in my bedroom. It was like something out of a crazy geek dream. Now girls, girls didn't interest me to start with because I had computers. I had computers and games. While other people were out having girlfriends, I did one of two things. The two things that interested me as a child was computers and games and motorbikes. My first girlfriend, girlfriend, and my mum came to us. She said to me afterwards, she said, I thought you were gay. She was, she said, I thought you were gay. Jason graduated from college and then began to pursue an advanced degree, but he didn't quite make it all the way through. I graduated from college. I went to do a BSc in computer science, but I found it too boring. So I left. And that's when I met Paula. There was a shop in Hanley, our local town, called Fiction Factory, and it was where you bought all your computer games. It was the place to be in the 90s for gaming and that. He had a room downstairs where everybody could play. We were doing a role play and there was going to be a party. I walk in, I'm wearing my DS9 t-shirt, Deep Space Nine t-shirt, and there's this girl sitting down alone on her own. She's wearing a Babylon 5 t-shirt. As I walked past the table, she said to me, Babylon 5's better. She just said it straight out to me. I understand later she was in a bit of a mood because she had been dumped that morning by her last boyfriend. So she was there annoyed and she just basically yelled that out to me as I went past the table. I turned to her and said, yeah, Babylon 5's better. I prefer it. the overarching five-year storyline and that it's amazing. <laughs> and I sat down. I don't know how I sat down. I can't remember sitting down, but next minute I know I'm sitting down and we spent the last four hours of that party. I don't even know what happened at that party because we were just sat there talking about everything. This was the first girl who got me. This was the first girl who I could talk about anything like this. Just, we, we went through everything. There was nothing that we kept from each other. Within a couple of days, we were a couple. Nobody wanted us to be together. First of all, she had just been dumped. So her friends weren't wanting to get involved with anyone. My friends, who thought I was a bit weird anyway, actually warned her off and told her that I was weird. My own friends did that. Her parents hated me right from the start. We got together the money to pay the deposit on a little rented terraced house. We didn't have a bed for six months, but that's how we started. Everybody thought we were crazy, but we just knew that we wanted to be together and that it was meant to be. She had a very bad family. She wasn't allowed to leave the house alone until she was 18. So she didn't even have male friends. I mean, she didn't go out much because her parents didn't let her leave the house alone. <laughs> they were really weird about that. When she left for college, it was like her trying to escape. She had the choice of going to a college nearby. Instead, she chose Olsager College because it was far enough away that she could justify being away from her parents and their control. But what solidified who she was was Star Wars. She lived that world. 
Her entire bedroom was covered in Star Wars pictures. She had all of the little toys and that everywhere in, her, in that room. Was really into the science fiction and the fantasy worlds. Walls were covered with books. She had all the Star Wars books. That was her world to live in. She rewrote Star Wars to have a female lead and changed the story so that she had the, she had the love interest of Wedge and Tilly's which was her favourite character in the entire series. The snorting sounds in the background are Jason's two dogs who stay very close to him as he talks to me. Most of the time she stayed in her room, writing, drawing, painting, science fiction worlds. That was who she was. Like any nerd who feels bullied or oppressed, Paula developed a rich inner life. She wasn't allowed to be herself really until she left home. Paula had dreams, big dreams for herself. She wanted to be a librarian and an archaeologist. And this was before the mummy movies. That was her goal. That is what she wanted to do in life. So Paula and Jason are living together and they're happy. One morning, Paula woke up with an odd pain in her legs. And unbeknownst to the both of them, this was the first indication that their life together, which had been so blissfully happy, was going to take a turn. We went to the doctor. The doctors didn't believe us. The doctors, trying to address the pain in Paula's legs, sent them to physical therapy. She probably needs to go to see a physiotherapist. She's probably strained her lower back, damaged her lower back in some way. Paolo and me didn't believe them, but these were the experts, so you go with it. They took us in, she went through physiotherapy. Silly enough, if they had took a blood test, they would have found out the leukemia quite easily. Can you imagine someone whose bone marrow is slowly dying and she's in absolute agony? They're pushing her through exercises and saying, you should have more strength than that, you should push yourself, you're not doing enough. If only they had took one blood test. Paula and Jason's frustrations with the medical system in the UK were really only just beginning. Paula was starting to cough really bad. We called out the locum, a GP that is on call during the night. He came out and he said to her, he said, I'll write you some antibiotics, you've probably just got a cold. The cough was coming from the fact that her white cells were crashing that her immunity system was zero and that she was on near to the point of dying. I looked over to her and she was coughing and as she coughed, this red mark appeared on her face. And she coughed again and this red mark spread. It looked like someone had punched it. It was a hematoma, it was the blood vessels rupturing underneath her skin. Because the platelets were crashing, there was no platelets to clot the body. I was scared when I saw that. At eight o'clock, I rang, rang the doctor. At first, I got put through to the secretary. I said, I want to talk to the doctor. She says, no, 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 no. I basically screamed at the woman until she put me through to the doctor. And I said, either you do this or I'm calling the newspaper and the next call you'll get is from the media. So, he came on the phone. I told him the symptoms and he says, I'll be there in five minutes. What Jason didn't know at the time was that this doctor, a Dr. Solomon, did part-time work for the cancer charities. The symptoms that Jason was describing over the phone were symptoms that Dr. Solomon had seen before. He came into the room. He didn't even say hello to me. He just went straight to her, looked at her, and he said, can I use your phone? 
He went straight to my phone, picked you up, called the medical assessment unit. He didn't even call the 999. He called straight through to the medical assessment. He says, you need to get an ambulance to this house and you need to do it right now. He turned to me and said, took me aside and says, I can't tell you what this is because I'm not qualified to give that result as a GP. He says, but brace yourself, it's going to be bad. The paramedics got there within like five minutes. That's when we found out it was cancer, that we found out it was acute lymphoblastic leukaemia. Now, we didn't trust the doctors at all at this point because of what had happened. This was a battle to me. I was very blunt to every single doctor who came in. I cornered some of the doctors in the room because I'm six foot two. I'm a scary guy. So I had them in corners and made them answer my questions and not give us any bullshit, as it were. From that moment on, every doctor for Paula's entire life had to show me that they were doing the right thing. They had to prove to me why they were doing this. They started her on chemo straight away. The plan was chemo, then look for a donor, a bone marrow donor, and we'll try to transplant and it can have good effects. We thought there was a chance of cure. The chemotherapy was really nasty stuff. The chemicals that we were putting in her body were so toxic, so much poison, that if someone transferred through her lip membranes to me, I could have been in trouble because after each session of chemo, she had to take in three litres of water and drips to wash it out of her system or it'd kill her. It could only stay in for like four or eight hours at a time, do its job, and then you get rid of it. We still thought we had a chance of curing it. And then they, they came to us and said, this is not going to work the way we want it to. Doctors discovered that Paula had an aberration in her genetic material called a Philadelphia chromosome. Because of this genetic aberration, traditional cancer medicines wouldn't work on this form of leukemia. So we had to go through a treatment, which is you basically kill the person. The doctor said to us, he said, we're going to do the equivalent of throwing your wife off a cliff. We're going to watch her hit the bottom, and then we're going to try to bring her back. We're going to try this because we don't have any other choice. This cancer is going to kill your wife. What the treatment does is they give you high-dose irradiation of the body. You've got to wait until the entire body's system, the entire body's bone marrow has died before you can put the new in. They took the bone marrow out, they clean it, they put it back in. You put the bone marrow back in, but there's no guarantee it'll restart. That was the chance. So she came back from that. So that showed her strength. They were all very surprised that Paula came back alive. Very surprised. Dr. Mahendra, I believe it is, came up and said, okay, we've knocked back the cancer, but he isn't gone. It's in what's called forced remission. It says, we've got to put you on this medication. It's got bad side effects, but this medication will keep the counts down and you'll have to live on this, this medication. That's how he went home. I remember when she got home, I had a pack of Bakewell tarts for her. 
because she hadn't eaten much there. Jason and Paula are home, but it didn't take long for the medicine's notorious side effects to reveal themselves. So almost straight away, it started affecting her balance. So she needed a walking stick. Paula was becoming more disabled. I'm just going to bring the dog upstairs. Beryl, come on, Beryl, come up here and try to use your inside voice. <laughs> there, good girl. There, she's here now as well. There, you be good girl. Be good girl. Yes, you're a good girl. It's really good to hear Jason laugh in this moment. Oh. Hearing his laugh makes me feel idiotically hopeful. Hopeful that his story ends differently than in the way I know it ends. When Paula got ill, I decided to create a place for her to be safe. Jason, using his savant-like understanding of programming, built something called a MUD. Multi-user dungeons. It's the old-style games that came before the MMOs. I wanted to create one. And Paula, even though she was ill, contributed to the mud as well. She did all the artwork for you in the game. She made ASCII pictures for every room. Now that was unusual because most people just go with descriptions that you write. But Paula would make out of ASCII characters castles and gothic structures and towns and lakes and everything. If it was a crab, she'd create an ASCII picture of a crab. She actually did most of the building on the first three versions of the mud. I did the coding, she did the building, creating of the actual world. The mud that Jason and Paula built together is called Edge of Midnight. Edge of Midnight was a story Paula wrote before I met her about a world existing between darkness and light on the edge. She liked to take the pictures of the dusk and the dawn. The, the edge, when it just going from dark to light. It had this wall that was in between and you had the dark area that was the evil and the light area that was the good. We created the actual world together. Her and me became the god and goddess of the world. Paula, unless we got the wheelchair out, could not leave the house, could not make it to the local shops could not walk the dogs with me. It was bad, but we coped, and we got in with life, and gaming was there for us. Open worlds, sandbox worlds were very important because you could actually live in them. You could spend days, weeks, months in these games doing whatever you want and going wherever you want. That's why I love the Ubisoft games. When your real world is so damaging, it really matters. The Assassin's Creed games are really special because of the emotion involved with those titles. The way you could live those lives. And because Paola wanted to be an archaeologist and was interested in history and everything, she absolutely adored those games. She spent as much time touring the different cities and exploring them and muttering her annoyance when the enemies attacked her while she was trying to explore one of the, one of the villas or something. 
One of Paola and Jason's favorite Assassin's Creed games of all time is 2017's Assassin's Creed Origins. Where is this temple? Assassin's Creed Origins features an almost overwhelming amount of detail. Historically accurate vistas sprawl all the way to the virtual horizons in the game. And the cities are based on actual historical data. There's a density and a rhythm to the ways in which you know, non-playable characters move about the city. It literally pulsates with life. I mean, one of the other things that I, I think we can't celebrate enough is the inherent mystery in all Assassin's Creed games, and especially in Origins. You know, you can travel from the very top of a pyramid all the way down to a, you know, a shadowy cave at the very bottom of the ocean. For a woman in a wheelchair doing her damnedest to fight cancer, seeing these vistas, getting to virtually travel to these exotic lands, to another time and place, was incredibly enchanting for Paula and Jason. But what really makes Assassin's Creed Origins come alive is the main character, Bayek, and his wife, Aya. There's a great love between the two of them. You can hear it in their voices in this cutscene from very early in the game. My dearest. They're making out like two teenagers on Blueberry Hill here. My wife. My wife. So there's honor in Assassin's Creed Origins for both Bayek and Aya. But there's also tremendous heartbreak, too. It is hard. I don't want to let go. It is agony to leave you. But I must go on alone. Aya. Bayek respects her wishes, and he lets her go. I walk on your water. I hope we will hunt together again soon. Until then, let us take this night as ours. Once again, more Blueberry Hill action. And then it's time to say goodbye. Farewell, Aya. What you are going to hear next is a conversation that Aya and Bayek have towards the middle of the game. Our victories have multiplied. It's the last time Our bond not so. these two characters speak. We could never have been. Everything has told us our love is impossible. You are right. Something bigger has called us. But our love lives in the duat. Only now we are letting go. At first, Bayek is not okay with this at all. Let the gods decide. The gods are dead. But then Bayek, realizing that arguing further would serve no purpose, he resigns himself to Aya's will. I am fine with this. I am fine with this, he says. So there's honor in Assassin's Creed Origins for both Bayek and Aya, but there's also tremendous heartbreak too. Being a hero, a true hero, means giving up the things in life that most people take for granted. In the final moments of Origins, Aya writes Bayek a letter. She still loves him, obviously. Let nothing grieve you beyond measure. For your life is short and time will claim its toll. But she's changed completely. She's transcended her origins. But I am no longer who I was. I am now the hidden one, known as Amunet. 
She never let it beat her, never let any of this beat her. We just lived through these games and when we moved in that house, it was right next to a graveyard. We'd go out every single day in the wheelchair because she took hundreds of pictures of all the graves and there was a park with a lake. The first year of us moving in there, things started to look up and this is the problem with Palos Inlet. Just when things started to look up, something else would happen. And that is when they took us in, the doctors said, we don't want you to panic. Don't you just love it when they say that? If anybody ever says that to you, the first thing you're going to do is take a breath in and think, oh shit, <laughs> what's going on? They said, interview on is stopping working. We don't know why, but it's stopping working. The counts are rising. We need to do something. We need to get you on a different kind of medication. And that medication was called imatinib. If we didn't go on to this new drug, Paola was going to die. It was as simple as that. We thought the side effects before were bad, but this knocked her off her feet completely. She almost became a zombie to start with. She could hardly move. Then other things started to happen. Her kidneys crashed, damage to her eyes, and her body just started to fall apart. But it was less of two evils because it was doing the job. The counts went back down. The cancer was in remission again. We were in a rock and a hard place, so we just fought on. That was the beginning of the end. Jason, trying to sort out the feelings that overwhelmed him, wrote something and posted it to Facebook. Right, I wrote this. When you love someone who is ill, they never see themselves as courageous or brave. They never think they're doing anything special. If you all take one thing from this situation, let it be this. Do not take what you have for granted. Do not put off till next year what you can do now. It's all well and good saving a nest egg and planning for the future, but do not forget today. Never feel guilty for doing what you enjoy. Otherwise, what the hell is the point at all? Me and Paola were just a normal 20-something couple with plans until one day a random event. If I could have one wish beyond curing my wife, it would be that no one else has to go through what we have. As soon as I posted that, I got a call from the hospital. The nurse said, can you get back here as soon as you can? I ran in there, ran up to the ward. The nurse said to me, do you want to go in with her? So I went in there and there was 12 people in there trying to save her. They were on her chest, pumping her chest. It was very violent. Nothing like they show you on a movie or TV drama. They don't show you how bad it is. And they let me say when to stop. And they kept going, they gave her medication. And I said, when to stop. ended for it's it's sad it's heartbreaking so and 
and it just held her as she faded away. That's the point when my life fell apart. I was in total shock after that. When she died, I was just in total shock. And then seven days later, I get told I've got bowel cancer. <laughs> Tough to believe, but true, Jason was diagnosed with bowel cancer right after Paula died. And I want to stick my finger up at the world. It's like, come on, I need a break. <laughs> she did a picture. And it still makes me cry when I think about it. She's been to a castle with um, like a huge opening in the centre of it. You could walk through the centre of this castle and it's a little forest and that. And there's just two little stick figures there. One is her and one is me. And she said, this is where I want to live with you. This is my dream. I always wanted her to live into a little castle and a little place away from it all. That's one of the most heartfelt images that she did of, with me and her on there, just sit, just in front, these tiny figures in front of this huge castle together. Me with my black coat on and her dressed in red. Hello, sir. Hey. This is Ashraf Ishmael, the director of Assassin's Creed Origins. Actually, uh, for both uh, Black Flag and, and Origins, I was the game director. Uh, I'm so proud of you. Yes, thanks, buddy. <laughs> I miss you, man. I haven't seen you in so long. Been way too long, buddy. Way too long, way, way too long. long. Listen, on the line at the same time with us both is uh, my friend Jason. Jason, pleasure to meet you. Lovely to meet you. <laughs> First of all, thank you. The direction that you went with Black Flags and evolved into Origins, making it more of a, an experience, was amazing. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much, Jason. So, so I guess you're, you've played the games, you're a fan? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> me and my wife were great fans. One of the most amazing things I remember is we first had it on the PS4 and we yeah. sat on the, in the living room playing. We played through together. I'd play some parts, she'd play some others. We had to fight to see who <laughs> was sailing because we absolutely loved the boat, loved the ship, loved upgrading it and seeing it grow over time until you could take on and travel the seas. It was just amazing. Those memories are some of the best memories i have with my wife oh thank you that's really that's really heartwarming to to hear uh you know game development is is always challenging i, I love it uh it's, it's a lot of fun but it's it's something we pour you know our 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 hearts into we, we spend every single day coming in and trying to do our best uh so to hear that feedback uh, it's it's very heartwarming and you know, I'm, I'm extremely proud of what we did for, for Black Flag. Uh, it, was a, it was a joy working on that project. So thank you for that. It's, it's really heartwarming to hear. I'm really happy that you have those positive, strong memories of that. I remember the part when three quarters of the way through, and me and Paolo were in tears, basically, sitting on the sofa. It's when you tried to rescue the woman from the jail. and Mary Reed. Yeah, and she's yeah. dead. And, yeah. and yeah. that... 
the emotional connection that you created in the game with the different characters. And right at the end, when you see them all in the end bit, <laughs> it just, it's like, oh yeah, that, that was just so well done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I, I personally worked on that last, the, the, the parting glass scene. Yeah. Uh, we worked on it fairly close to the end. Uh, we knew what we wanted, but we really wanted to make that moment live. Uh, it was actually Darby, our uh, lead writer on that project. It was He chose the song Parting Glass. Yeah. For a long time, we were just trying to think, how do we say goodbye to all these people? How do we say goodbye to this journey? And it just hit us. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I'm really proud of that moment. Yeah. Uh, thank you for saying that. Jason, can you tell uh, Ash about, uh, about Paula and what you two went through? Because he, he doesn't really know. Well... I met Paula 21 years ago, um, love at first sight. About a year into the relationship, she became ill. Oh, my. With acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Oh, now, my. This is an, a childhood leukemia, but if you get it as an adult, it's harder to fix. For the next 20 years, we fought it. Um, wow. It did massive damage to her, hurt, damage to her arm, arms, legs. She, her kidneys failed. In the end, she had a double cardiac arrest. Oh, my. My condolences. But one of the things that allowed us to fight it, games. We would play games together. Paula became disabled very early. Paula wanted to be, I mean, when you see the mummy film, oh, the doggies, <laughs> when you see the mummy film, yeah. The woman in that who, who, wants, who is a librarian and wants to be an archaeologist. Paula's dream when she was, in, she was in college, she wanted to be an archaeologist. She loved history. So imagine what your game, what origin was like for her. This was the last game she was able to wow. play through. She oh my. To visit Egypt. She was able to explore that world. Even though she was hurting in pain all the time, she could exist in these games, and the games made more sense than life. Some of my best memories of Paula is her going around the pyramids and that, places that there's oh, wow. no way she could ever visit in real life. What you did for Paula is something more important than most of the doctors did. You made her smile. Your game made Paula smile. She was always going round there, looking at the pyramids and climbing up and the vistas that you could see. Mm-hmm. And so these are the amazing things that you did, Ash. No. <laughs> but those games allowed Paul and me when real life was really hard, when we couldn't do anything to stop what was happening to Paola. Yeah. We could we could go on these games, we could go on Black Flag, we could go on Origins and exist in there, in a world where things made sense. Yeah. Ah, uh, Jason, I'm, I'm trying to control my emotions here. Uh, <laughs> Ash is an I, emotional guy. I'm, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm a very emotional person. No, but uh, I mean, uh, Jason, uh, you know, it's, it's somehow uh, heartbreaking and beautiful uh, at the same time. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the memory you're carrying of her and the way you speak about her, I can feel uh, um, 
uh, the the relationship and the love uh, you two had. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. You're you're a wonderful person for for being so happy, you know, for her and 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 for the the smile she must have had. Um, and I'm uh, I'm finding myself uh, humbled and grateful that I was able to. Or that we, you know, it's, this is a, a big team effort. Uh, it's a lot of really talented people, very passionate people who who fell in love with Egypt and, and tried our best to to give it a recreation. You got to pay this forward to the rest of the team, man. You got to let them know what you guys are making important stuff over there. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I, I really appreciate hearing that. You know, we do pour our, our passion and our souls into these things. Uh, we are working on something right now. I can't talk about it yet. Of course. Um, uh, but uh, we, we, <laughs> we've been, uh, since Origins ended, we've been working on something that I'm quite uh, proud of. Uh, I played games when I was a kid. Yeah. I had a Nintendo and I even had an Atari. But I, I actually never conceived of making games as a as an occupation or as a thing that people do. I played games and I loved them, but I had, let's say, different aspirations. And then in, uh, in high school, in grade 10, I was taking a programming course and our teacher taught us programming by making little games. And uh, the first game I made was a hangman game. That was the project that we were at. Everyone was making a hangman game. So I, I kind of rushed through building the first, uh, the, the basics of the game itself for it to work. And then I spent the next two weeks of the project writing a story about this person and why this word that you had to find was sort of this person's salvation and what happened to this person if you didn't somehow redeem them. And I, I built this all strange story and then I, I added animations and all this stuff. And, and then I, I had some of my friends in the class play it. And I had this really wonderful, beautiful eureka moment, which is when my, one of my best friends was playing this hangman game and he was laughing and he was laughing at the story that I had written. You know, it hit me. It's, this is what I need to be doing with my life. I want to build worlds. I want to tell stories. It's not just the act of doing it. It's actually the handoff to give to someone else for them to take and to, to get whatever they need to get out of it. I always credit Soul Calibur of all games. We would play Soul Calibur together and my memories of the game wasn't explicitly the game. It was sitting with my best friends and the joy we were having around the controllers. That handoff of, you know, we, we build a world and we give it to other people to, to derive some type of enjoyment out of it. Yeah. Um, it was a major eureka moment for me. It's the thing that to this day, it's what I love doing this for your story and you saying this to me means a lot i really really deeply appreciate it thank you yeah i mean it's like very like that sitting down with paula just looking after over to her and seeing her giggling and smiling as she's piloting the ship around in yeah. black flag it's very special if you say that your hobby is football or your hobby is cricket or baseball or something okay but you say your hobby is Halo <laughs> to a non-gamer and they just can't get it that it's, it's yeah. important to you and the memories are just as real <laughs> yeah uh, that, that's beautiful those are wonderful memories I actually know I have the exact same thing with Halo <laughs> playing Halo online with some friends and laughing so much uh, that we couldn't even complete the map because we were losing ourselves 
Jason, uh, you know, I, I can't, uh, I can't imagine what, what you've gone through, and you're incredibly wonderful to to carry and hold on those memories of her. And I can hear your smile and your voice, and that's a really beautiful, wonderful thing. It's a, it's a really beautiful, sweet message uh, you've given me today. My pleasure. The doctors basically have no idea how to do, look after me at all. They've said that. I've, I talked to a grief counsellor and she said to me, she said, first of all, she says, you may not make it. I, I like people to be honest to me. She says, in my 20, 20, I think it was 25 years of her career, she says she's only met three people that were actually truly in love, in true love. And two of those couples, the person that survived died very recently after them because just could not, the heart was broken so much that they died. I've got ADHD, PTSD, I've got reactive depression, <laughs> I've, got, I've got the loss of my wife and all that at the same time and nothing fixes. What fixes it is games and being on the stream. When I'm on the stream, when I'm talking to the people, when I'm connected to the community, I'm far better than I am when I'm not. So I spend 11, 12 hours doing that and it is the best therapy I could have. Jason has also put together a website celebrating Paula's art and offering the pieces for sale. I've got 120 of her pieces of work, her art, that I've scanned in. I'm going to set up a website, put them on so people can buy them. People will know about Paula because they've bought a piece of art about her and know a bit about her. And that matters. She would want these pictures to be out there and for people to be looking at them and appreciating and what she went through to do them. I realised something a few days ago. I mean, I did, a, I, did a, I did a video on my channel about I am amazing and I did it as part for myself and part for as my daily update. This is Jason talking about how amazing he is on the Queber channel. I actually kicked the ass of my depression. And that's a major thing. This is something that hasn't happened in 10 months. In fact, it hasn't happened in 21 years. I've fought against it, but I've never kicked its ass. This video isn't just for an update. This is for me to go back to whenever I'm having a bad day, to remind myself how amazing I am. And I am absolutely bloody amazing. This isn't just a Oh, let's fluff yourself. Let's try and bolster yourself. No, let's deal with facts. And from here, Jason methodically begins to list the things that are amazing about himself. We're all amazing with what we deal with. The fact that we get out of bed in the morning, none of us have a life that is free of challenges. I put down all the things I did, like looking after Paola, creating the streaming service, all these things that I did, I've put down on that video so that if I ever have a really down day with the depression, I can watch that video again and see just what I did. Because we are all amazing. You're amazing. I'm amazing. I miss her so much. I also know that she's not coming back and that my choice are in front of me twofold. The first choice is basically turn this house into a fortress of solitude, basically lock myself down, never go out and spend the rest of my time online. But that could be 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Or I could make the effort and 
I need to step outside the house. I'm still having really dark times. I still cry a lot. I still spend a lot of time wandering around, wondering why am I doing this? But you continue. It's the temptation to just close it all off and just exist there. But it's a waste. My life isn't over now that Paola's not here. It's life. We can't just turn away from it. I mean, it would be too easy just to turn away and close yourself off, but you can't. Jason bravely and boldly live streams almost every day. You can find him on Twitch, on YouTube, under the name Queber, Q-U-E-B-B-E-R. I'll put links to his amazing live stream on my website. I'm telling you, this thing will turn your day around. This week's episode is brought to you by Boss Fight Books. Great books about classic video games. The short books, very smart, fun to read, super insightful. Two favorites of mine, Nick Sutner wrote about Shadow of the Colossus, and uh, my good friend Chris Kohler wrote about Final Fantasy. It's a really unique kind of artisanal publishing house. I absolutely love these books, and I think you will too. Go to bossfightbooks.com and find out more. Music tracks in today's episode include Barn Dance by Hakan Erickson, Not Alone by Lee Rosevere, Constellation and Building Time Lapse, both by Pottington Bear, Sumerian Paradise by Dew of Light, What's Up by Soily, Cassiopeia by S.A. Carl, and finally Appalachian Bellflower by River Foxcraft. All songs can be found on the Free Music Archive, freemusicarchive.org. Special thanks also to Ashraf Ishmael and Emmett Burtz. He found Jason's story on Reddit and sent it to me, and that's the whole reason why this episode exists. So thank you, Matt. Heavily Pixelated is produced by Sarah Deakins. Our audio producer is Stephen Nikolic. If you'd like to ensure the future of Heavily Pixelated, then I urge you to go to our Patreon page, patreon.com backslash heavilypixelated. Extra special shout out this week to our first round of patrons. They are Patrick C., Marissa R., Kyle Chouinard, Amanda H., David West, Julie Michaud, Matt Houston, Elliot Rodenberg, Zach Tate, Graham Smith, thank you so much, Gary Jin, thank you so much. And finally, our very first patron, Christopher. Christopher wrote to me and told me that he went to the Heavily Pixelated Patreon page and he saw a zero in the number of patrons and he just couldn't let that stand. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Heavily Pixelated. I'm Scott C. Jones. I'll see you then. I want a piece of cake. I want a piece of cake. I want a piece of cake now. I might even chance on ordering a bit of takeout for tonight. <coughs> Calm down, doggies. Both doggies. Both doggies. They heard something outside. Bye bye for now.